place to which we journey tonight is extremely dangerous. You must obey every command I give you without question. Yes, sir. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. So I want you to stay right here and wait for me. He left He left it! But that's not what I'm gonna do. We should call him Zatara. Sounds fearsome. <laughs> it means driftwood. See all those words printed in a line, one after the other? Put them all together, and you have a story. I think we all know that there's these, these years in our youth when we start to come of age, and we have these tremendous and heart-wrenching learning experiences. And I know a lot of people experience those in high school or junior high. For me, it was middle school. I mean, fifth grade for me was a tough year. Partway through one of our first trimesters, uh, I got a note sent home to me letting me know that I had Fs in like four of the subjects we were studying. I didn't really understand how homework worked at the time. Um, I didn't understand how tests affected my grade. I don't know how I made it out of, out of elementary school without this critical knowledge, but I didn't have it. And there was a lot of learning experiences. Uh, I also didn't necessarily see eye to eye with my teacher at the time. We'll call her Mrs. K. And uh, in hindsight, I do think she was a little bit grumpy. She's one of those teachers that you're like, I don't know that your calling in life was to teach school because I don't know that you like teaching. I don't know that you like being around kids. But that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is, I was a little bit of a rambunctious kid. I was a little bit of a loud mouth. And I had a number of experiences that, that were just absolutely painful. In science class, we were learning about we were learning about sponges, you know, the sea creature that kind of looks like coral and it's like this soft spongy material. And my teacher was talking all about it and she's like, they're sponges. Well, they're not actually sponges. There's this and that. And, that. and then she went on and, da, 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 and she's talking and then she comes back to it and she's like, and so now we have these sponges. But again, they're remember, they're not sponges. And she went in and she explained the reason why these technically weren't sponges a second time. And my inside voice became my outside voice, and I, I, I said something that I shouldn't have. <laughs> I, uh, in a very loud voice, I said, oh, just get on with it. <laughs> oh, it was awful. The, the, the vacant stare that my teacher gave me after I had said that, she pointed at the door and said, get out in the hall right now. Oh, and, and, and afterthought, I was like, why did I say that? Why did I even speak up? And she came into the hall and ripped me a new one. And I had all sorts of things I had to do to make up for it. And I apologized profusely. I said I didn't mean to say it out loud, but I don't know that that exactly clears it up, you know? Well, uh, that's just to give you an example of the type of student that I was and the learning experiences I was having. Uh, a more important learning experience for me uh, is what I call the Koosh incident. Now, I don't know if you remember, in the 90s, there was this cool toy going around that, that was called a Koosh. And it was like, it's like this ball, 
made of these rubbery little strings all tied together to make like a ball that's like soft and but rubbery it's it's kind of this weird texture if you've never experienced a koosh go ahead and google it or go buy i think you can probably still buy them on amazon um but they're fun and you throw them around and they they kind of feel cool in your hands and they're just almost like a, a fidget toy and everybody had a little koosh, but there were some kids who were lucky enough to have like the full-sized koosh, right? Like a koosh that was big enough that you could hold it in two hands and that's how big it was. Well, my neighbor, Brett, had a full-sized koosh and I asked him if I could borrow it and play with it. And he said I could. And I made the mistake of taking that koosh to school with me. And it was really awesome and I was playing with it in my desk and then other people wanted to see it and we were throwing it back and forth and so stupid why would i bring that sort of a thing to school when i already know my track record is just awful in fifth grade and of course we're playing around with this koosh and mrs k walks by and snatches it up snatches it out of my hand disrupting class and Mrs. K had this, this awful rewards program. And the reason I, I say it's awful is let me tell you how it worked. She would turn anything like that that she took from, from students who were messing around and she would put it up on a shelf. And to earn it back, you had to earn points each week that, that were kind of like, you know, like uh, school bucks where you, you save them up and you can buy fun stuff. And she had some candy and other things, but a lot of the things in her little reward system were taken from other students. And I got this koosh taken away from me and she put it up on that shelf and she marked it as a thousand school bucks. And that's like a thousand school bucks was not something you earn in a week. It was not something you earn in a month. And my gut just drops because I've got to go back and tell my neighbor that I lost his koosh and that the only way I can get it back is if I earn a thousand points. And I remember going up to Mrs. K after class and explaining, saying, that wasn't my toy. I need to return it to its owner. Can I please have it back? And she was emphatic. She was like, absolutely not. Well... I uh, felt the first weight of stress in my life at about that time, and I knew I was responsible for this koosh, and I had to get it back. And I also knew there was something else working against me. That koosh was on sale for anyone else in the class. And there were a number of kids in my class who teased me and were saying, oh, I'm gonna earn it back before you do. And I felt, I felt this weight on me, like, oh my gosh, how, how am I gonna get this koosh back? I've gotta earn it back. And that's when I learned a very valuable lesson. And that lesson is comes in the form of discipline and what I call gradual progress. Because a thousand points, a thousand school bucks, if you will, was not easy to come by. And I started just collecting my school bucks. And I remember every Friday the store opened and people could buy candy and buy little toys using their, you know, their points. And every week I just knew that if I wasted any of my school bucks, that koosh was gone. And I didn't tell my neighbor that I had lost it yet. In fact, he hadn't brought it up again. So I, my goal was to earn it back and return it to him before he even knew it was missing. I spent the better half of an entire school year saving up and earning points to try and buy the koosh back. And you won't believe it, it took me all the way up to the very last week of school to have enough where I had a chance to buy the koosh back. Well, 
the last week of school, Mrs. K takes all of these things and she puts them up for sale that Friday and says, hey, students, you can use your final bucks. And I knew that there were many other students that had also been saving up points to get something big for Mrs. K's little reward system. And so it began, the buying began, and she would randomly call on people and allow them to buy something from her little store. And every time someone had enough to buy the koosh, they'd all look at me, these other students, and they were like, hmm, should I get the koosh or not? And it was like torture just sitting there. And I knew that Mrs. K didn't like me and she wasn't gonna call on me till the very, very end. And everyone's laughing and, and lo and behold, this person buys a teddy bear, this person buys more candy and this person, it finally gets around to me and I was able to buy the koosh back. The other students were kind enough to not buy it ahead of me and they let me buy it back. And Mrs. K returned the koosh to me and I remember her looking at me and she was just scowling and she's like, don't make me take that, don't make me take the koosh away again. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I put it right in my backpack. I zipped up the backpack and I was like, I'm not bringing it out for the rest of the day. And when I get home, I'm taking it out and returning it immediately. Whew. Just remembering that story, I can feel the anxiety of trying to earn back this stupid koosh ball. From that point moving forward, I started to recognize in life these lessons where so many of the things that I wanted, things I wanted to achieve, things I wanted to earn and buy, things that I wanted to, to have in my life required a disciplined, gradual process in order to achieve. And this lesson was reinforced for me time and time again, every time that I wanted something. And, and trust me, I wasn't the type of kid that, that I had these, these dreams of, I, I didn't need a fancy car, I didn't need fancy clothes. Everything that I wanted to achieve had to do with skills and talent, right? I feel like I was like Napoleon Dynamite. I was like, you gotta have bow hunting skills, nunchuck skills. There were so many skills that I wanted to have. I wanted to play guitar, I wanted to be good at drawing. Um, I wanted to be able to write. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be good at gymnastics. I wanted to be good at soccer. It was in high school when this lesson was driven home again, and it was sort of the, the icing on the top of the cake that just confirmed to me how important it was uh, that if you want to achieve one of these things, the dedication of time and discipline spent on it were critical. In my year in school, I had a friend, his name was Grayson, and uh, we had known each other since middle school and all through high school. He became one of the best, no, I'll, I'll say it different. He was the best guitarist in our grade, in our high school, probably of anyone who lived in our entire city. Not that Rexburg is that big, um, but Grayson was just really, really good at guitar. My dad plays guitar, my brothers play guitar, I play guitar, I know, I knew, I was in all sorts of friend groups where people played guitar. It was like, it's like a thing. If you could bust out an acoustic guitar and play some cool songs, like there was some clout there, right? You got some attention. You could even become semi-famous. There were some bands in Rexburg that were like semi-famous that played on the college campus, that played at some local venues and even sold CDs and made money as a band. Not that anybody ever got signed or anything like that. Um, but there, there were some serious musicians in Rexburg growing up, and I wanted to be one of them. But wouldn't you know it, time just passed by and years passed by, and while I practiced guitar here and there, and I did learn a few songs, and I got pretty good, and I was proud of myself, I was never in that upper tier of people that were really, really good at guitar. I never played in one of those bands that got a lot of attention. But Grayson did. 
He played in a number of bands. He played with guys that were older than him. He was recognized by so many people as being one of the best guitarists. And I found out why. And it only served to confirm what I had begun learning in the fifth grade, and that's this idea of a disciplined, gradual process of achieving this thing that you want that's bigger. Um, anytime that you want to achieve something that's not readily available, it's something that not everybody has, I believe it's going to require a gradual, disciplined process in order to achieve. But one night I went over to Grayson's house. I was in high school. I was probably a junior. It was a Friday night. My friends and I did this thing where we'd pile into the car on a Friday night and we'd drive around to random people's houses, knock on their door. This was before cell phones. We'd knock on their door and uh, see who was home and see if anybody wanted to hang out, see if anything was inter interesting was happening. And one night after visiting a few people, we drove over to the Weeks' home, Grayson's house, and uh, I was invited inside and told that Grayson was down in his room. And it was a Friday night, it was probably 9 p.m., and I went down into Grayson's room, and he was lying there. <laughs> Get this. He's laying on his back on a mattress on the floor, and he's got an electric guitar plugged into an amplifier, and it's turned really, really low, and he's just sitting there playing. I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, so, so what's special about that? Here's, here's what's special about that. So I came in, and I asked Grayson, what are you doing? What's going on tonight? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, like, are you, are you got plans tonight? Are you doing anything? And he's like, oh, we'll see. We'll see who comes over. And uh, he's like, you guys are here so we can talk. And uh, there were two really important lessons that came from this evening. Um, the first being that that was the same night that Grayson introduced me to Coldplay, which would pretty quickly become my favorite band of all time and has impacted my life in so many different ways through the years. I absolutely love Coldplay follow him to this day. And that night he showed me Scientist. He, he popped in a CD and Grayson played The Scientist by Coldplay and I was hooked. So that was the important thing number one. Important thing number two is I thought Grayson's answer was really, really weird. I was like, Are, like you got plans tonight? And he said, I don't know, we'll see who comes over. And I said, what if nobody comes over? And he's like, oh, then I'll sit here and play. And I was like, how long have you been playing? And he's like, uh, what time is it? I was like, it's like nine, 9.30. And he's like, uh, I got home at four from track. And yeah, I think I came straight down and I've been playing since four o'clock. So it's been a few hours. And I, and I was like, I was like, you're just down here playing by yourself. And he's like, yeah, it's fun. He's like, I, I learned three new songs tonight. And he showed me, he put them on this, you know, he popped in the CD and played these songs. And he's like, yeah, he's just listening to them and figuring them out. And first off, that blew me away that he could just sit there and listen to them and figure them out. And he showed me them and I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds almost exactly like they sound on the CD. And then I asked him, I was like, is this like, is this how you do every Friday night? And he's like, yeah, if nothing's going on, if someone stops by and wants to go do something, I'll go with them. But if nobody stops by, I'll just sit and play. And he would legit sit and play his guitar for hours and hours and hours. There was no FOMO for Grayson. There was no like need to like, gather the gang and like, go have fun. And I just remember being dumbfounded and asking myself like, why am I not like that? When Friday night comes along, I wanna be out, I wanna be doing something, I wanna get with friends, I wanna go uh, dink around and like, go, go hang out and pretty much waste my time on Friday nights in high school. Now I know what you're thinking. You're in high school, it doesn't really matter, right? You, you have time to spare, you use it and enjoy the time. And that is one attitude. But I wanted to be good at guitar and I did not have the discipline at the time. 
to do what Grayson was doing, where he just sat there for hours on end. As long as nobody else interrupted him, he'd just keep playing guitar. And it showed. He knew so much about guitar. He could play so many songs. And he wrote songs as well. And he had all this time to do it with. At the time, I understood this lesson intellectually. I looked at what he was doing and it made absolute sense that every week Grayson was accumulating hours and hours and hours of time playing guitar. And when I looked at myself, every week I was accumulating maybe 30 minutes to 45 minutes playing guitar. It's really obvious when you start measuring it and looking at the results, how the two correlate, right? He was just spending a lot more time doing it because guitar is one of those efforts that you can't sit down and in an afternoon suddenly be good at guitar right? It takes a lot of time and effort to get good at it. The other thing is most instruments and sports, there's kind of the, the, these tiers of success, right? Where with guitar, you can get proficient pretty quick, where you can play some chords and you can do some things and sound okay. But to jump from that level to the next level where you become more of a virtuoso takes an incredible amount of effort to go from here to there to go from that proficient level to being dang good at guitar. Now, like I said, I understood these lessons intellectually, but I didn't understand them in my heart because you can't really know something unless you're putting it into practice, right? You can know something intellectually, but you don't really know it unless you're actually doing it. And it would take me several years to finally find the discipline in order to do this kind of thing. Now, what I learned was playing guitar wasn't actually my calling. I wasn't passionate about it enough to be able to put in that sort of time. But what I did discover later in life is that I did have that level of passion for writing and storytelling. It's like my favorite thing in the whole wide world, and I get such fulfillment and joy out of doing it. Now, the reason that I'm sharing these things, as I mentioned, writing a book is a gradual disciplined process. You cannot do it in a night. You cannot do it in a week. I do not think you can do it well inside of a month. There may be people that claim, yeah, I wrote a book inside of a month and maybe they had all the time in the world and they just cranked it out over the course of a month, but it's going to take some editing and and a whole process after that to go through it, right? It doesn't, Rome wasn't built in a day is the famous expression. Same thing, a book is not written in a day. So the question is, How do you write a book? And that's what this series is all about, right? This is part four on how to write a book where we actually break into pages. We've gotten our idea. We've decided we're a writer. We've practiced outlining and pitching our idea to make sure that the story is starting to work before we jump into pages. And now that we're really excited about this idea and we pitched it and a lot of things are working, maybe we don't have all the answers yet, but we've got most of them. We've got a good backbone to start on. We're ready to jump into pages. So the question then becomes, how do you do it? And the answer is you sit down every day and you write. Now that sounds really easy, but it's a lot harder to implement, especially when everybody's lives seem to be so busy these days. I'm going to share with you some quick numbers to put things in perspective. There are 365 days in a year. If you were to practice doing your craft, whatever it may be, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, it may be writing, but maybe you're applying these things to other creative endeavors because this gradual disciplined process applies to almost every creative endeavor. Whatever your craft may be, 
If you do it every single day of the year, you will end the year having done it 365 times. That is not enough to master that thing. Malcolm Gladwell's book claims that in order to become a true master of something, you need 10,000 hours, which means if you spend an hour on it every single day, at the end of a year, you'll only have 365 days. Let's do some quick math. Let's do some quick math. 365, you'd have to spend more than 10 years doing something an hour a day in order to reach that level of mastery. Now, there's two things working against you. Are you putting all your time, energy, and focus towards this thing? Well, if you can only do it for an hour a day, probably not. The other thing is, do you want to wait 10 years in order to be able to finish your book? My guess is the answer is no. Most people who set out on an endeavor that will require them 10 years of their life are never going to finish it. I share this because you do not have time to lose. You don't you don't have days to lose. Every day that goes by is one day less towards reaching that 10,000 hours. It's going to take you years to reach that level of mastery. If, if that is if you're doing it consistently. However, there's another concept at play here, which is momentum. Momentum is this idea where you have this enormous train, right? A steam engine, and it takes a lot of effort to get that train up and moving because it has so much weight that it is pulling behind it. But once a train is up and moving, now it doesn't take near as much energy to keep it moving. And what you're trying to achieve in your writing is momentum. And doing it daily, doing it as often as you can, keeps that momentum up so that every time you sit down to write, it doesn't take as much energy and effort to actually do it. And the words will just start to flow. Now, to put this in further perspective, most publishers expect full-time writers to crank out a new book every single year. So if you're a full-time writer, that's a huge advantage to you. You should be spending eight hours a day, right? A full-time job is eight hours a day, five days a week. That's 40 hours a week. You should be spending 40 hours a week writing your book. If you're spending less, it's just going to take you longer to do. People are blown away by the amount of writing and books that Brandon Sanderson can put out. He puts out more than a book a year. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three books a year. And people are blown away by this and they're like, how does he do it? I've got news for you. He spends time on the page doing the thing that results in books going out the door, which is writing. And that's what today's episode is all about. We're actually breaking into pages and we're actually gonna sit down and start writing our book. And I know everything up to this point that I've um, advised you to do feels like preparation but it sets you up in order to do the process, do this gradual thing while avoiding as many obstacles as possible. So what I'd like to do now is spend the remainder of today's episode and talk to you about things that I've discovered that make this process easier. As I've said, this process requires discipline, requires stamina, prolonged effort over the course of many, many, many days, months, even years. The current novel that I'm working on, I have spent the past four years working on, and it's still not done. And I try and put in as much time as I can. Often it's one hour every single day. I've averaged seven hours a week for the past little while in order to crank this out faster. It just takes a lot of effort in order to do these things. Like I said, it's this gradual, disciplined process. So here are some of the things that I've discovered along the way that can really help you remove some obstacles because the endeavor in and of itself is already difficult. There are some strategies that if you employ as you start to break into pages that will make the process that much smoother and that much easier to sustain. 
The first thing that I would advise you to do is to make sure that you're setting off with the appropriate goal. Now this may surprise you, but your goal when you sit down to write the first draft of your book, your goal is not to write an amazing book. It's really not, right? This will mess you up so much if in the back of your mind you're thinking, I have to write something amazing because that is just not how amazing work comes about. All rough drafts are rough. I think we've discussed this before, so I won't belabor the point, but let me tell you what your goal is. If your goal isn't to write an amazing book, what is the goal? When you sit down and start writing your book, and every day that you sit down to write after that, your goal is to finish the story. Your goal is to go from point A through B, da 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 da, da all the way to Z. Your goal is to get this idea, this, this half-formed notion that you have an outline of, that you've practiced pitching. You wanna take that entire concept and get it on the page in a format that someone could sit down and read and understand beat by beat what happens in the story and they can go from the beginning of the story to the middle to the end. Your only goal when you sit down to write this first draft is to get the story out. It is to finish the story. When I sit and I imagine all of the unfinished manuscripts that are out there in the world, geez, it's gotta be so many. The real obstacle to writing a book is being able to get through a draft. We've already discussed how writing is actually going to be an iterative process. It's not gonna just be one pass through and it's done, which means the thing that is gonna get in your way the most is trying to get perfection on the page out of the gate. So get that out of your mind. Your goal isn't to be perfect. In fact, it's better if it's not. You want to write in such a way that you can go from the beginning to the end. I call this process write and don't look back. And I mean it. You wanna sit down on the page and start putting down words and working through your story. And if you don't like something or if you decide later on, huh, I should change something about that scene, write it down in a separate note intending to come back to it, but you don't stop. Again, as long as you know your goal is to get to the end of the story, doesn't matter how it looks, your goal is just to get it out there, it makes it so much easier. One of the things that is the scariest thing for a writer is the blank page. I promise you there's nothing harder than the first sentence of your book, which means the goal should be to just get it out of the way as quickly as possible, right? Move on to the next thing. So you just sit down and you start writing. Start telling the story as if you were telling it to a friend because guess what? That's what you're doing, right? We've had it hammered into our head over and over and over in different English classes. Show, don't tell, show, don't tell, and they're right. But not right now because that is one of the things that'll mess you up is you're gonna get so enamored, so caught up in the language and how flowery you want it to sound that you'll never finish the dang thing. So in your first draft, I promise you there will be time later to go back, fix sentences, to show not tell, but we all have a natural ability inside of us to convey a story, to tell a story. Let that come out, let it be as raw and natural as possible, right? This is the, the whole idea of write and don't look back. I spoke about momentum a second ago. The way that this momentum works in writing is once you've written that first sentence, you never have to look at a blank page again, right? Because the next time you sit down to read, you're gonna read your last paragraph, your last sentence that you wrote, 
and you're going to continue from there. And I promise you, you read that sentence and bam, suddenly your mind is already engaged and the writing will flow a lot easier. Let me caution you. Do not sit down and review what you wrote yesterday. You will get caught in the trap of trying to fix, tweak, and edit what you wrote yesterday, and it will prevent you from moving the story forward today. Again, I promise you there will be time to go back and fix it. But before you go back and fix anything, you want to know if the story is actually one, working, two, a story that you want to tell, and three, if the story is working. There were only two things, weren't there? As I discussed with pitching and outlining, the whole goal is to find out if the story is actually working. Because you may spend a month tinkering on a scene and editing words and sentence here and paragraph here, only to find out that you don't want that scene. You don't want that character. You don't want, the whole thing doesn't even matter for the story. You might end up taking the story in another direction where that scene no longer matters, but you'll never know until you get the whole story out on paper and see what it is as a whole. My next advice when it comes to sitting down and actually writing your book is to not try and be anything. This sounds corny, but just be yourself. You're not, you're not trying to sound like Tolkien. You're not trying to sound like Robert Jordan. You're not trying to sound like uh, Susan Collins or JK Rowling. Any of these famous writers, they're not you. All you wanna be is yourself. And if there is a voice to your writing, it will come out naturally because it's part of you. I, I kind of think that this idea of write and don't look back and this sort of unfiltered process of writing your story, it, it's kind of Buddhist. It's, it's like, don't try and be anything, just, just be you. Now, the last thing that I wanted to mention is that even though we've outlined, even though we uh, pitched it and we've got this whole idea for the narrative in the back of our mind and we're trying to get that narrative on paper, I also don't want you to reference your outline too much as you start writing. Like I said, you write and you don't look back and you see what happens. And if something exciting pops into your head as you're writing, go with it. This first draft is an exploration in the story you want to tell. And your subconscious and your life experiences and what I think is true godlike inspiration, inspiration that comes from something outside of ourselves, will hit you as you're entering that creative process. And, and, and don't shield it off because you're trying to stick to this outline. The whole idea of write and don't look back is just letting the narrative find its own path like a river running down the hill. Uh, Stephen King says that most of his stories are less like inventing something and more like uncovering a fossil in the ground, right? You, you catch onto that first bone with the brush and you start digging it up and brushing away the dirt and you don't know what you have yet. You don't know if it's a Tyrannosaurus rex, a Triceratops. You don't know what kind of fossil you found, what kind of skeleton you found in the dirt. But each brush stroke, each step forward, you start to uncover more and more and the thing starts to make sense. And I promise you, this crazy thing will happen when you're in the zone and when you're just pushing to focus on telling that narrative and move forward towards the end of that narrative. Your characters, they will honestly take the story and run with it. I have had so many experiences where I'm writing a scene and because my outline dictates that the scene go this direction, suddenly my characters, I can't seem to get them to go that way. And this... This sounds corny and people are like, yeah, that sounds a little bit weird, but I'm, I'm not kidding. There are times that I'm working with the character and I can't get them to say the right thing be because they don't want to say it. Every time I write the words, I'm like, oh, that's not what this character would do. That's not what this character would say. This is a moment of inspiration. 
bam, do what the character would do. Because really, if you have a setup and you've got the major conflict down and your characters are left with decisions to make, if you truly know your characters and you're writing from the heart, your characters will naturally take the narrative and run with it. And it's kind of this amazing experience. It feels like true in-the-moment creation, at least being part of that in-the-moment creation as the characters start to run forward with your story. And if you are trying to be overly wordy, if you're trying to sound like another writer that's not you, and if you're trying to stick too much to your outline and force the story, your characters will never do that. The most beautiful things that I have ever written are because they stemmed from character and they weren't ideas I had going into it. All of that preparation that we went through to outline and to pitch, it's important to give you a backbone of the world that you're writing about. But once you're up and moving and you have that momentum, let the story just go and blitz as fast as you can from the beginning all the way to the end of your story. And then when you're done, you can take a breath you can look at it as a whole. You can start to decide, did it work? Do I like it? What do I not like about it? It's an iterative process and we will go back and edit. And the next episode is all about this editing process. But when you first break into pages, move at breakneck speed. Let it flow out of you. Discover what your subconscious can. First drafts should be written with the door closed, meaning without any feedback. Just let it be the raw you. Don't try and be anything. Just let it flow out of you and see what happens. You'll, you'll discover two things. One, there will be scenes, paragraphs, sentences, chapters that are absolute crap. But there's this other thing that happens. Things you didn't prepare for that come seemingly out of the ether will be amazing, unexpected, surprising, and delightful. And you'll say, oh my gosh, that was such a good idea. I cannot believe how well that worked. And you wanna gather all of those moments because they are what makes a narrative, uh, the, you know, writing is an art form. They're what, they're, they're what, those moments are what turn the writing into this true expression of the human condition, what it's like to be you and why you are more qualified to tell this story than anyone else because you are the channel through which all of these ideas are coming. In the next episode, we'll talk a lot about editing. There's a lot of tips, a lot of tricks, and a lot of things you can do to improve your writing and make it more palatable for, for a reader. But again, in this first draft, as you break into pages, I don't want you to worry about any of that. I just want it to be raw. I want it to be you. And honestly, this stage in the process is the most rewarding and the funnest stage in the whole writing process. It's creativity at its peak. It's, it's true invention happening before your eyes, unadultered, unfiltered, and you get to see, you get to just see what comes out. And don't judge it, just let it flow out of you. And I promise you, there will be some amazing things that come from it. 